Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Jonah Saller Show. I am your host, Jonah Saller. For those of you who do not know me, I am a professional Bible studier, and I am passionate about preaching the truth of God's Word. Um, and so today, we are going to be wrapping up the sermon series I've been doing on the Olivet Discourse. This is part three. We covered part one, part two, and today is the final section. So today we're going to be focusing very heavily on verses 36 through 51 of Matthew chapter 24. And again, just for everybody who may be new and isn't familiar with the Olivet Discourse, the Olivet Discourse is a specific conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, hence why it's known as the Olivet Discourse. So if you haven't heard part one and part two, you can listen to them on Spotify, iTunes, or my website as a podcast, or you can find them on my YouTube channel um, if you want to get caught up. But for those of us who have been around, have heard the first two parts, today is the final section, revolving, like I said, around verses 36 through 51. Though we will also be touching on verse 27 and 28, which correlate to verses 36 and 51 um, via using Luke's account of this conversation. So again, for those who are tuning in who haven't heard part one and two, I encourage you to go back and listen. Um, and with that being said, let's dive into the final part of the series with the triumphant second coming of Jesus Christ. But before we do, please pray with me now and let's get going. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you today so grateful for an opportunity to open your word, an opportunity to study the Bible an opportunity to, to just grow in an understanding of Christ, grow in an understanding of your word. It's just such a privilege and an honor to be able to do that, Lord. Um, I know there was a time when Bibles were not in the hands of the general public, Lord. And what a miraculous thing it was that we now, without fear, in a place like America, all can have Bibles and read them and know you. What a, what a just privilege that I don't ever want to take for granted. So, Lord, as we open to the final section of Matthew chapter 24, I pray that your words would, would speak true and clear, and it would not be my words, my interpretation, my perspective, Lord, but that this would be true to what Scripture is actually saying, Lord. I pray that you would guide the words of my mouth, that they would be uplifting to the hearer, and that your Spirit would speak through me this morning. In your precious name we pray, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Ghost, Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 36. And we're going to read verse 36 all the way to the end. So if you have a Bible, please open with me, Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 36. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Let's read together. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. 
Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the, his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him into pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's some heavy stuff. Before we unpack those verses, what I really want to do is I, I want to briefly address verses 27 and 28 in Matthew chapter 24. So just skim back to those verses really quick, and let's read what they say. So this is what it says. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now these verses, while they are in the middle of the chapter, are genuinely accepted among scholars to be directly related to verses 36 and 51. And this is first due to the language being used. It describes a visual coming illustrated as lightning. So it seems very clear to me with just a basic reading that this cannot be referring to his coming in power and judgment on Jerusalem, though it could allude to that, uh, nor can it be about his coming to, on the clouds to approach the ancient of days. This is a very clearly a visual, physical, bodily coming that every eye will see, just as one sees lightning from the east to the west. The other reason that scholars include this in relation to verses 36 and 51 is due to Luke's account of this conversation. And this is really important uh, to make this distinction. So in Luke chapter 17, totally separate from the Olivet Discourse, Luke gives his account of basically Matthew chapter 24 verses 36 and 51 and in his version verses 27 and 28 are included. So if you would please turn with me to Luke's account so we can just look at this for ourselves you know. So Luke chapter 17 verses 22 through 37. Please turn there with me. <clears throat> Luke chapter 17 verses 22 through 37. Jesus is talking to his disciples here, and this is what he says. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And, then, and they will say to you, Look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. And here is that part from Matthew. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And again, we see this generation mentioned. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, 
Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, and again, this is also allusion to Matthew, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So as you can see, Luke includes the lightning visual and the corpse and vulture visual in his account of this conversation, which goes directly with Matthew 24, 27, and 28, as well as 36 through 51. So now that we have that settled and you can kind of see that picture, let's dive back into the main text of this morning. Um, and before I do that, I just want to make it known that there is still some debate among theologians as to whether 36 and 51 does still relate to uh, 70 AD, just as the rest of the chapter. Others say it relates to what is known as the rapture of the church. Um, and I just want to make it clear that there are different views out there. Um, and as for my take, I will try to explain now why I believe that verses 36 through 51 is referring to the second coming of Christ at the end of history. So with that being said, let's start with the first verse, verse 36. Let's read it together. It says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So the first thing I want us to note is the word but and the phrase that day. These words to me define and confirm that this is talking about the second coming. When we see the phrase, but concerning that day, we are met with a strong contrast and a, and a very definitive break between what is now being spoken of versus what has been spoken about previously. To further emphasize this, look back at verse 22 in Matthew 24. It opens with those days, in those days. In verse 29, we see immediately after those days. In verse 34, we see all these things. And yet when we get down to verse 36, we see, but about that day. In other words, all throughout verses 1 through 35, we see phrases like, in those days, describing events that will take place within that generation. Yet when we arrive at verse 36, we see the tone change to, but about that day, marking a new subject. And if that isn't enough, we also see that all the events described up till verse 35 are signs leading to the coming of Christ on the clouds of heaven to approach the Ancient of Days. He even confirms this by saying in verses 33 and 34, when you see all these signs, you know that he is near right at the door. And then he guarantees that it will all take place within that generation. Yet when we arrive at verse 36, Jesus says, but about that day and hour, no one knows. So the first 35 verses all talk about signs leading up to an event, which I think is clearly the end of the Old Covenant in 70 AD. And yet when we arrive at verse 36, it's about a new event that has no signs. So the admonition is therefore to keep watch. And I think that this contrast is extremely clear and verse 36 must be seen as a break in what was previously being described and the start of something new, which is what I believe to be a description of the second coming of our Lord. 
So, with that being said, let's move on to the next few verses where we will see what I believe to be a common misunderstanding of these passages that, once clarified, I think make it very clear that this is talking about the second coming of the Lord. So, again, for verse 1 we see, but on that day, as opposed to those days, these things we see that day, but that day no one knows, no signs. If we continue on, verses 37 through 41... This is what we read. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And that word coming there is parousia, which is consistently used to talk about the second coming. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, the most popular view in America right now is that this passage is referring to the rapture of the church hence the idea of one event having signs but this one not having any signs a lot of people believe truly believe the rapture has no signs it's just going to happen when we least expect it and so that's why that there is this distinction between those days with signs versus that day that doesn't have any signs so i grew up holding this view but the more that i've studied this passage the more it seemed confusing to me that to think that this is what it's talking about. And so I want to break it down to you to try to show exactly what I mean by this. First, we need to very, very carefully look at what Jesus says. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then he gives the example of what the days of Noah were like. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So we see that this coming will be like the days of Noah, where people are going about their lives with little to no care in the world, giving in marriage, eating, drinking, having a grand old time. But he goes on to say that just as Noah was prepared and found safety on the ark, while the rest were swept away in judgment, so it will be when he returns. This picture of Noah and his family being preserved while the rest are swept away is important when we look at the next verses. And the next verses say, Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. With this image of Noah and the great flood fresh in our minds, I want us to read this text without our presupposition of a pre-tribulational rapture. When the flood came, Noah was left and preserved. The evildoers were taken and swept away in judgment. Noah was left because he was prepared. The evildoers were taken and swept away because they were not prepared. So when we read that two men will be in a field, one is left and the other will be taken away, which one do you want to be? You want to be the one who is left, the one preserved, the one that is not swept away as in the days of Noah. 
To me, to turn this passage into some kind of left-behind imagery doesn't make sense in the context of the imagery we've been provided from Christ Jesus. And to me, it becomes even clearer if we go back to look at Luke's gospel in chapter 17. I, I, I think this becomes just so clear. So Luke goes on to not just give the example of, of Noah, but he goes on to give the example of Lot. And this is what he says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And again, I think that word, the day, is important, and also the word revealed. This is not a secret rapture coming. This is a revealing and most people believe that when the rapture happens, we're just going to disappear out of our clothes and float up to Christ, but no one's going to see anything besides us who are being changed. But the Son of Man is being revealed on this day that is being talked about. And the rapture does not indicate a revealing. So here, Jesus, again, gives the example of Lot, which, who was once again preserved and left while the wicked were taken in judgment. And I think the, the cherry on top is the end of Luke's account. This is what Jesus says. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. One will be taken, the other left. And the disciples say, where, Lord? Where will they be taken? And his response where the corpse is, there the vultures will, or will gather. So this further illustrates the picture that wherever those take and go, it's not pleasant. It's a place of death, as Jesus clearly and vividly explains. So again, if we go back to Matthew 24, I really want you to see this picture that cannot be talking about the rapture of believers. It just cannot. Rather, this is clearly referring to the preservation of the faithful who have kept watch and waited with eager anticipation for the coming Savior, and the wicked, like the days of Noah, mocking and going on with life as normal until the flood came and swept them all away in judgment. So, that being said, let's continue on reading from where we left off. So Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 24, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping, and gnashing of teeth. 
My friends, what we see here is simply a picture of the nature in which Christ's coming will be. Like a thief, quick and unexpected. We also get a strong sense of imminence in this depiction. You do not know the day or hour, so keep alert. Do not fall into the temptations of the flesh thinking, I've got time. This could happen today. My friends, how many of us actually live like that? How many of us actually live like time, history, humanity, world nations, everything could come to an end right now as we speak? So many of us don't live with that sense of urgency. And that, that is actually another problem, in my opinion, with viewing that this passage is talking about the rapture. The rapture does not give an imminence and a finality to the coming of Christ. It gives an imminence to the church most definitely, but not to an unbelieving world. To an unbelieving world, after the rapture, they have a second chance to repent and change their mind. After the rapture, things may get worse in the world, much worse, but they still have time to repent. This idea gives way too much to the possibility that even after the second coming of Christ, there will be a thousand year period on earth where people will still be able to repent and turn towards Christ. My friends, I want to be very gentle with how I say this, but the Bible does not indicate multiple chances for humanity. If we read scripture all throughout the Gospels, and you can go and look yourself, just type this in on Google and you'll, you'll see all the references. Jesus talks about two ages. He talks about this age and the age to come. Period. This age, the present timeline of history, the present world, and the age to come, eternity. That's it. There's no room for second and third chances. The Bible communicates imminence, finality. And my friends, I've talked to non-believers on TikTok, and they've said, if your God is real when the rapture happens, I'll know for sure and then I'll repent. And my friends, for those who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, there's not much you can say to that. According to that perspective, yeah, they, they will have another opportunity to repent. And I, I tell you, I, I want that to be true. That would be wonderful. But I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. When Christ comes, he's coming once. And those in him are preserved and remain. And those that aren't are swept away in judgment. There is no second chance, no sign, no warning. When he returns, it's over. Again, Jesus talks about two ages and two ages alone. This age and the age to come. The present time and eternity. Nothing more and nothing less. And my friends, this is so important to consider when we are studying eschatology. When we leave a gap where there's going to be a rapture and then a seven-year period where people can come to Christ and then after that there's a thousand years where people can still come to Christ, it, it, it takes away this imminency. It takes away the ability to preach the gospel and say, this is it, he could return today and it's over. There is a massive, massive imminence, a massive, massive urgency to preach the gospel, to get people to repent, to show them their need for a Savior because He could return today. So my friends, 
This is a relatively short sermon today, but I, I, want, I want to end with this. What we see in these verses is a picture of an imminent yet unexpected coming of our Lord. One, one day, could be today, could be years from now, we don't know, but one day the sky will split open. Christ Jesus will return bodily to judge the quick and the dead. Some will go to eternal life, those left, and some will be swept away into eternal punishment, those taken. Our Savior is coming like a thief in the night. The world will carry on as it always does, eating, drinking, and living for the now. But as believers, we have a higher calling. We are not living for the now. We are living for eternity. We are living with a hope of the coming of Christ to redeem all things. As we read in scripture, we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. In this hope, the hope of redemption of our bodies, we are saved in that hope. And my friends, we also rest knowing that our king reigns right now. And that he must reign until all his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. Once that happens, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we too will be clothed with immortality, and we will join our Savior up in the clouds as he returns to judge the wicked and redeem all things, ushering in eternity where righteousness will dwell. So my friends... What we have in Matthew chapter 24 is not a picture of a future trouble to come upon the world, but rather a picture of the old covenant coming to a close and the new covenant breaking into the world. We see a picture of our Jesus seated on the Davidic throne with all power, glory, might, and kingdom, and the promise that he will return bodily one day to make all things right. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this chapter, from start to finish, is about the victory of the Lamb, the end of types and shadows, and the revealing of the Messianic kingdom in all its glory and splendor. So, in closing, I must say this. Not everyone agrees with this interpretation. There's a lot of ideas about this passage. And as I said on the first day, this is the most difficult and disputed chapter in Scripture maybe with the exception being Revelation chapter 20, which we go into at some point, and that's a long, long conversation chapter. That being said, I believe that today I have presented the clearest and most scriptural view of this passage, taking into account the original language, the original context, the original audience, and the surrounding chapters, Matthew 21 all the way through 24 into 25, that all relate to this particular subject. However, I want to maintain a sense of humility and quote one of my favorite theologians, Doug Wilson, who says, I do not mind changing my theology midair. And I love that. My brothers and sisters, regardless of how everything goes down, we stand in a place of complete and total victory in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will come again, and all of us, regardless of our differing eschatological views, we believe that. We cherish that, we unify over that, and we look towards that. 
So I praise God for his word this morning. I praise God that we can look with assurance to the coming of Jesus Christ. I look forward to the day when the sky will split open and everything will be made right. So with that being said, that concludes Matthew chapter 24. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ reigns on high until all his enemies are made a footstool from his feet. And when he returns, all things will be made right. And so us, not knowing the day or the hour, let us keep watch, let us keep vigilant, and let us keep a sense of urgency as we go into the world proclaiming the good news, not about a king who is to come, but a king who was enthroned 2,000 years ago, who sits on the throne right now. With that being said, let's close in prayer, my friends. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, we are just so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for the, the beauty of Jesus Christ, the beauty of his death and his resurrection, and the fact that he came to die not so that we might live, but he came to die so that we might die, and he lives so that we might live. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful, so humbled, so in awe that you would die for a wretched sinner like me. And that through your blood, in your blood alone, Lord, we have the fullness of life dwelling within us. And God, as we go into the world, as we go into the world and we see the, the lost, and we see the depravity running rampant, that we would not have a sense of the world is winning, but we would know that you are on your throne. And that through the preaching of your gospel, we will conquer the nations. Lord Jesus, I trust and believe that you will reign until all your enemies have made, been made a footstool for your feet. And so until that day, myself and all my Christian brothers and sisters listening will continue to proclaim the good news of the gospel, proclaiming the king who is here, the king who is reigning, as we draw through the power of the Holy Spirit more and more people to Jesus Christ. We thank you for the clarity of your word, the truth of your word, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.